to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We took a little time off from our verse-by-verse study for Christmas Day, but we'll get back to John chapter 11, and we want to look at true faith in Christ as we finish up this chapter uh, this morning. John chapter 11 has been a very important event that took place during the ministry of Jesus. It was the raising from the dead, his good friend and the brother of Mary and Martha, We've been looking at those events that led up to the raising of Lazarus, and today we come to the actual miracle of bringing a dead man back to life. You know, sometimes the skeptics will say, well, show me a miracle and I'll believe. But you know, even if they saw a genuine miracle, they still doubt, and they look for a naturalistic explanation to find some other reason to continue in their unbelief. And we've seen repeatedly, John has written this gospel, especially the seven miraculous signs that Jesus performed before his death, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That's found, that purpose statement's found in John chapter 20 and verse 31. But not all who saw Jesus' miracles in person believed in him. Just as not all today who read the eyewitness counts of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels believe in Him. And the barrier to faith is that we love our sin. As Paul points out in Romans chapter 1, all people have adequate evidence of God's eternal power and divine nature through creation, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know, if God exists, and if God created all things, then sinners know that they're in big trouble. And so they invent myths like evolution to dodge the reality of God so that they can continue on in their sin. Now, if any miracle should have resulted in every person present falling on the face and worshiping Jesus as God, it would have been the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This man had been dead four days, and so that his body was beginning to decompose. I don't know if you've ever been around that kind of a situation. I don't want to get too graphic in that. I was an ambulance driver at one time, and so I had to uh, uh, deal with that. So I know what that's like. But when Jesus cried out in verse 43, Lazarus, come forth! Life returned to this dead body. And he was completely restored. And he walked out of the tomb. He was still bound with the grave wrappings or the swaddling clothes as we talked about from the Lord Jesus last week. As a result, many did believe in Jesus. But in an amazing display of hardness, of unbelieving hearts, there were others who went to report to the Jewish leaders what had happened, and rather than acknowledging their mistaken view of Jesus, they intensify their efforts to kill him. Now in the narrative, Jesus tells Martha, here in verse 40, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God. Believing would result in seeing. 
But in verses 45 and 46, others who saw the, the, the wonderful miracle, the unbelievable miracle, if you say, they didn't believe it because they said, it's unbelievable, we can't believe that. And their foolish hearts are darkened. And so I think the lesson here is for us in this passage, if we believe in Christ, we will see the glory of God. But if we see miracles without believing, we will be hardened in our sin. Notice, first of all, seeing the glory of God. Seeing the glory of God. Now, Jesus' comment to Martha there in verse 40, that if she believed she would see the glory of God, probably refers to an earlier comment back in verse 4, if you remember, which would have been reported to Martha and Mary. And this uh, was uh, in verse 4 says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And so Jesus aim in all that he did was to glorify the Father. We will find that out when we get to chapter 17. But Jesus is the revelation of God's glory to us. And as John said in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In heaven we will see Jesus' glory in all of its fullness. And God's glory is essential and it's intrinsic splendor. The Hebrew word has a notion of weight or heaviness. And so it refers to God's worthiness, his reputation, his honor. And the emphasis in the Bible is on glory as a manifestation of his attributes. Now in this case, Martha's faith would result in her seeing God's glory as seen in Jesus' intimacy with the Father and in his power to call Lazarus from the tomb. The miracle validates Jesus' astounding claims that he made back in chapter 5 and verse 21, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. And then he added in Verses 28 and 29 of chapter 5, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in that in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Because Jesus raised Lazarus, we can know that he will make good on his promise to raise the dead someday, either for eternal life or for judgment. So this miracle should result in our seeing the fact that Jesus is the author and the giver of both physical and eternal life and that he has all power over death. Now we should apply these words, Jesus' words, to Martha in verse 40. If thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God. First, we should always join Moses in his prayer I beseech thee, show me thy glory. That's what Moses prayed. That's a bold prayer. Moses had already seen the Lord at the burning bush. He had seen God's power in the ten plagues at Egypt. He had seen the Lord deliver his people through the Red Sea, provide water from the rock and manna from heaven every morning. And I'd be satisfied just to see one little of those displays of God's glory. But, you know, Moses wanted more. And so should we. 
As we see more of God's glory, it transforms us into His image. And so always pray that God would grant you more faith so you can see more of His glory. The Spurgeon who applied this verse very challenging to his congregation to believe God for the conversion of sinners who were as corrupt in their morals as Lazarus was in his body. You know, sometimes we see people in their wickedness and their and their their terrible sin, and we think, well, you know, there's no way that person's ever going to get saved. I mean, they're so wicked, they're so immoral. That person will never get saved. You know, if salvation comes from human willpower, that would be true. But that's not where salvation comes from. We can't make people get saved. If salvation is of the Lord, then He is mighty to save, even the most chief of sinners on this earth. The word miracles here in verse 47 is a word which means signs. Signs point to something beyond themselves. And the physical miracles point to the deeper spiritual truth. As a dead man whose body was undergoing corruption, Lazarus is a picture of sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are cut off from the life of God. They are morally corrupt in His holy presence. And as a dead man, Lazarus had no power to raise himself from the dead. He needed new life that comes only from God. It required the life-giving word of Jesus to call him from death to life. And that's really true every time a sinner gets born again. Now, this may be an unusual way of saying this, but we need to go to the Father in believing prayer and ask Him to save those who are dead in sin because they stink. Sin stinks. And Jesus' words apply to anyone who who has not yet trusted in Him for salvation. And if there's someone like that this morning right here in this congregation, if you will believe in Him, you will see the glory of His love and His grace and justice at the cross. And if we believe in Christ, we will see the glory of God. Secondly, we notice the resulting faith in Christ. Resulting faith in Christ. And I think one of the first things we need to affirm is that Jesus did raise Lazarus from the dead. It's not just a made-up story. John reported this miracle so that you would believe in Jesus and have eternal life in His name. But you know what? Satan always attacks essential truths. No, it's no accident that liberal critics dispute that this miracle really happened. People say, you know, that really didn't happen. That's just a story that someone made up. And so they argue that John presents the raising of Lazarus as a crucial event that precipitated Jesus' death at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And if this is so, they say, why do the other three Gospels omit this important event? They conclude that John must have made this story up, must have fabricated this story to illustrate some spiritual truth about Jesus. In fact, I have a commentary in my library where the author says this, He says, it does not really matter whether or not Jesus literally raised a corpse to life in AD 30. But it matters intensely that Jesus is the resurrection and the life for every man who is dead in sin and and dead to God today. 
Now, that's some very strange reasoning. And by the way, I don't believe everything I read in my library, okay? I've got a lot of books, but I don't believe everything that's in those books because they're all written by human authors. And I don't believe everything I read on the Internet either, by the way. Now, I have many commentaries, but they are not the Word of God. And you know, we must be careful in our study, and especially in the use of commentaries. But this particular commentator I'm referring to said, it's like saying that it doesn't really matter whether Jesus raised bodily from the dead. I mean, he's almost saying, you know, it doesn't matter if Jesus rose from the dead. As long as we learn some spiritual lesson from it. Paul refutes that nonsense. You see, you go to the Bible and you say, you know, that doesn't match up with what the Word of God says. So when you look at a commentary and you read this, oh, that sounds really good. But then look at see what the Bible says. And Paul refutes this in 1 Corinthians 15. And said, if Christ is not literally raised from the dead... Our faith is what? Dead, empty, worthless. If Jesus did not literally raise Lazarus from the dead, then John's credibility as an eyewitness of Jesus' glory is worthless. His entire gospel becomes a clever fable. Just put it right alongside Aesop's fables. You see, it's not really worth staking your life on or your eternal destiny on. And so, Jesus did literally raise Lazarus from the dead. And it's clear that John is narrating here an event that he saw take place in actual history. The story does not read as a concocted fable or myth. It is straightforward, it is realistic with factual details, and even Jesus' enemies acknowledged that He was doing many miracles there in verse 47. But they couldn't question that Lazarus had been dead and now was alive. So Jesus' critics who lived at that time didn't doubt the fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead, but modern critics living 20 centuries later somehow seemed to doubt it. So what we have here is not a parable, not a fable, just making a moral point, but it's a historical account of Jesus raising a decomposing corpse to life. We have a God that's that powerful. John wants us to apply this miracle to our lives, and so the miracle should increase your faith in Him. It should increase my faith in Him just by reading this passage of Scripture. John views faith in Christ as both initial and then ongoing. The disciples believed in Jesus in chapter 1, but in chapter 2, after Jesus turned the water into wine, we read, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth His glory, and His disciples believed on Him. And then in chapter 6, Peter says, And we believe and are sure that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But here in chapter 11, Jesus tells the disciples in verse 15, "Am I? And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto Him. 
And Martha clearly confesses her faith in Christ in verse 27. Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. But in verse 40, Jesus still challenges her to believe. And so we need to apply this to ourselves. If you have never repented of your sins and you've never put trust in Christ as your Savior and your Lord, that's where you began a relationship with Him. That's when you move from spiritual death to eternal life. If you do not believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're still under God's wrath according to John chapter 3 and verse 36. The Bible commands you to believe in this Jesus And be saved. What must we do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? The jailer asked Paul and Silas. He said, believe. Thou shalt be saved. But you don't stop there with initial belief. Your faith in Christ needs to grow. And it will grow if you see more and more of who he is. The miracle shows that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He is, as he told Martha in verse 25, the resurrection and the life. He is the eternal God, Son of God who took on human flesh, laid down his life willingly on the cross so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And this miracle shows that Jesus can do what mere men cannot do. Religion could not raise the dead. All the Jews could do is offer consolation to Mary and Martha, the scribes and the Pharisees, they could not raise the dead. Even modern medicine, with all of its advanced knowledge, cannot raise a body uh, to life, a body that's already begun to decompose. Jesus could do that, what no mere man could do. He spoke the word and Lazarus instantly came out of the tomb. And this miracle illustrates our insufficiency and Christ's all-sufficiency. And one reason that we don't trust the Lord in our daily lives is that we feel sufficient. We feel adequate in ourselves. We may ask Him for a little help now and then, but we don't acknowledge what He told His disciples to do. And that is that without me, ye can do nothing. Now, if you know that, that, like Jesus can't, uh, if you know what that you, like Jesus, can't do life on your own, then prayer makes complete sense, doesn't it? When we recognize our own insufficiency, our helplessness, then we cast ourselves on the Lord and our faith grows when he answers. And as Hudson Taylor, uh, the great missionary, uh, pioneer missionary to China said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on a God being with them. But this story is not just about believing in Christ so that we can see God's glory. Or it's not just about seeing miracles that would result in the growth of our faith. It's also a warning. A warning against seeing God's mighty works without believing. And so thirdly, we see the hardening of the heart. This account of Jesus raising Lazarus is a case study in the frightening nature of unbelief. And we learn three lessons here. Number one, unbelief is not based on insufficient evidence. 
What further proof of God's power could you want than to smell the stench of a rotting body as it rolled, as they rolled the stone from the tomb and hearing Jesus' loud command and then seeing a formerly dead man stumble from the, the tomb, still bound in his grave clothes? And yet some who witnessed this went away to inform Jesus' enemies so they could intensify their plans to have him arrested and executed. And of course, this wasn't the first miracle that these enemies of Jesus had witnessed. They acknowledged that he is performing many signs in verse 47. They had seen the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, who used to beg at the pool of Bethesda, now walking because Jesus healed him in chapter 5. They knew that the man born blind who used to beg at the temple gate now saw because Jesus healed him in chapter 9. But they rejected both these miracles because Jesus had done them on the Sabbath. And now Jesus does the ultimate miracle by commanding Lazarus to come out of the tomb. And what further evidence could they ask for? But their unbelief was not based on insufficient evidence. They had the evidence, didn't they? You know what? The same is true today. We have the evidence of fulfilled prophecy, including over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. We have the eyewitness accounts of His teaching and His miracles. There is evidence of Jesus' empty tomb, backed up by the changed lives of witnesses, who all at first doubted His resurrection, but later were willing to suffer and die because they knew He was alive. There's the evidence of the intrinsic design of all creation from the molecular level up to the global global level. But unbelief due to the hardness of human hearts suppresses the evidence. And so the hardening of the heart comes unbelief is not based on insufficient evidence. Secondly, unbelief is based on selfish interest. The real heart of unbelief is seeking your own way while you leave God out. Now, there are two groups of people represented here, which represent two levels of unbelief. First, we see the unbelief of the religious leaders. Caiaphas and the chief priests and Pharisees. Verses 47 to 53 here, the basis for their unbelief is clear. In verse 48, it says, If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. You see, they had vested interest in the system as it was, and they were afraid of losing their system. And if the people believed in Jesus as Messiah, they believed that the Romans would intervene and they would lose their power and their comfortable living through the controlling of the temple. Ironically, by killing their Messiah, the very thing they feared came on the nation as God's judgment when Titus destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. Caiaphas, who was the high priest, was a shrewd, calculating politician. First, he discredits that everyone else had said by flatly stating, verse 49, ye know nothing at all. And then he postures himself as being concerned for the people in verse 50, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that a whole nation perish not. You see, he meant if we really care for our nation, we'll eliminate this rabble-rouser Jesus. But he wasn't actually 
concern for the nation. He was concerned about himself and his own self-interest and his own power. But John shows the irony of Caiaphas' words as the high priest. He was unwittingly prophesying that Jesus would die for the nation. Look at verse 52. Verse 52 says, And not for that nation only, but also he should gather together in one the children of God that be scattered abroad. John is referring to all of God's chosen ones around the world. Uh, They were not yet children of God, but God told Paul in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verse 10, I have much people in the city. Uh, They were not yet saved, but they would be saved through Paul's preaching because they were God's chosen ones. And as Jesus said, and this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but shall raise it up again in the last day. Again, the lesson that we should be learning here is that we cannot frustrate God and His sovereign purpose. You can oppose God, and for a time it seems like, hey, you're succeeding. And they did succeed in a sense. They killed Jesus. But in the end, God really wins, doesn't He? That's the message of the last book of the Bible. Hey, read the last book and you'll find that God wins. And God is going to win, and all that oppose Him will lose. So you see the unbelief of the religious leaders. And that second group here is that, that did not believe were the common people. Verses 55 through 57 here. They went up to Jerusalem for the Passover. They were not openly hostile toward Jesus, but they really weren't committed to follow Him. They were curious onlookers uh, on the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. You know, hey, there's something really going on here. Let's watch this. This is going to be really interesting to see how Jesus and these leaders go back and forth. So they were curious about it. They were content to go up to the religious festival and they were discussing whether or not Jesus would show up and what would happen if he did. But they didn't care to take a stand for Jesus because that would put them on the bad side of the religious authorities. And so their interest in protecting themselves caused them to be passive while the religious leaders murdered an innocent and good man. And again, the lesson here is that to be neutral toward Jesus is still to be unbelieving. You can't be neutral. Self-centeredness is the heart of unbelief. The result of their self-interest was counterproductive in that Jesus went away because his time had not yet come. And to have Jesus withdraw from you is the ultimate tragedy. Now there's a third lesson here, and that is that unbelief is seen in religious people. Again, a very ironic warning here in verse 55. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now this again is referring to that second group of unbelievers. They weren't openly hostile, but neither were they committed. They were good churchgoers. They went through the outward rituals, but they were not willing to take a stand openly for Jesus Christ. I hope that doesn't describe anyone here this morning. 
Now, it's possible to be devoutly religious, to attend church regularly, to partake even in the Lord's Supper, and yet not be fully committed to Jesus Christ, especially when that commitment might cost you something. And so I conclude with the warning of Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The Jewish leaders asked, What do we do? For this man doth many miracles. That's a good question. What are you doing with Jesus? Now you might think, well, the options are, number one, oppose him. Number two, be neutral toward him. Now, we already said that's really not an option, is it? That really goes with number one. Or you could believe in him as Savior and Lord, no matter what it may cost you. If you believe, you will see the glory of of God in Christ. But if you see miracles reported in God's word, you see it here and you read it, you don't believe it, you'll be hardening your heart in sin And the Savior will withdraw from you. And you don't want to go there. I trust as we think about what's taking place here in the life of Jesus and those who are surrounding him, that we can certainly see how it applies to us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven.